Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this is our companion episode for Truth or Consequences, episode 18 of season six of Supergirl. And the topic we have chosen for this week is objectification, as in treating a person as if they are an object. Now, most people associate this with the idea of sexual objectification because that's the way you're most likely to see it used. Mm-hmm. But it's just generally any situation in which a person is treated as if they lack personhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to talk about the concept of objectification, I took a look at Martha Nussbaum, an American philosopher who laid out seven notions involved in objectification, one of them being instrumentality, like treating a person as a tool, which is interestingly relevant to the sort of capitalism commentary subtext that we've been seeing with Kara this season a lot, where she's feeling mm. like she has to always be working and she encounters that sort of burnout. Is that like the piece of Red Daughter that she absorbed into her? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, within the capitalist context. <laughs> yes, exactly. But that is actually really relevant because we see a lot when Kara speaks about her role as Supergirl or even her role as a journalist. She tends to think of herself as a symbol first Mm-hmm. and Kara, the person, second. Yeah. And other characters have encouraged that also in her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another notion involved in objectification is denial of autonomy, as in treating a person as if they do not have self-determination. There's inertness. A person doesn't have agency or like activity. They are inert. So then in terms of activity, you mean almost like the NPC characters in the uh, (laughs) VR. Right. Where they don't change. They don't really have a personality. They just exist Mm -hmm. to be there. And they never change. Yeah. They're not doing other stuff with their lives. Yeah. (laughs) Another notion is fungibility, as in a person is interchangeable. Yes. That helped me make sense of NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, which Mm -hmm. is the idea that they are a unique piece of code that can't be exchanged for something else. Right. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I still don't get why they're so expensive. (laughs) Yes. All right. (laughs) All right. Violability is when a person is treated as if they lack boundary integrity. You can violate them without consequence. Mm, So for some kind of like real world, not great examples, Mm. one is people thinking that they can like touch black people's hair because they want to just like feel it Mm -hmm. because it's different and they're not seeing the person as a person who maybe doesn't want you touching them. Mm -hmm. And then along those lines, there's also been this issue of gay men thinking that they are allowed to touch women's bodies Mm -hmm. because they're not sexually attracted to them and that that's not a boundary violation, even though it is. Right. Yes. Another notion involved in objectification is ownership. Hmm. Like we see Lex. With everyone. (laughs) Yes. He's ever met in his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there is an interesting notion of denial of subjectivity, which is the objectifier treats the object as something whose experiences and feelings, if any, need not be taken into account. Hmm. Well, and the key piece of that is the way it's phrased. They treat a person as a thing Mm -hmm. and not as a person. And that's probably one of the most common ways that objectification of people is expressed just socially in Mm -hmm. in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Uh, And it's one of the ones that's the hardest to figure out how to navigate because sometimes you don't know that's what you've done or (laughs) the other person doesn't tell you or you don't think you're being mean and then you feel defensive. Yeah. And overall, these different notions, we also talk about othering in this episode, these notions of objectification challenge a person's like dignity and and their innate worth. Hmm. And an interesting character generally with regard to objectification and in this episode to talk about is Brainy. Yeah, it's Brainy's turn. It's his moment to shine, even though he's very sad at the moment. Uh, (laughs) 
because he had such a nice, well-done storyline in this episode where we really got the opportunity to look at how much he's grown and developed as a character since his entrance in the middle of season three. Mm -hmm. If you think back to the episode Legion of Superheroes, when we first saw him, he came across as this kind of seemingly dispassionate character Mm -hmm. who was often just slightly disconnected from his peers. If you think about the ways he'd communicate with them, for example, like he'd make remarks that contextually fit the conversation, but maybe they mismatched the tone Mm -hmm. or he'd lead with information just in the order in which it occurred to him instead of thinking about what would be of most interest or most importance to others. And also when he first came into the series, he was much more reliant upon calculations when deciding how to act and saying that's always the best option. And then as we get into the end of season four, he starts moving away from that. Right. He sort of initially tries to behave in an objective matter Mm. all the time, which results in sort of an objectification of himself and others. Yeah. The other thing to think about in the context of understanding where he is in this episode is when he came into the series in season three, he was very attached, number one, to the myth of Supergirl, speaking of objectification of people mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and also to the fact that the legion granted him membership like he was mm-hmm. always a little bit i can't believe they did like i don't think i maybe deserved it yeah versus now where he is at the end of the series here in season six we've gotten little hints along the way that maybe the legionnaires were not quite as openly accepting of brainy and embraced who he was mm. for his uniqueness. You think back to the one time he had the outburst where he said that microaggressions are their own form of trauma, and he was specifically talking about Monel, who was his friend. Mm. And you especially see him recontextualizing those experiences as he spends more time with the super friends. The difference between the way Brainy felt in the Legion and the way he feels as a part of this group are part of what's causing so much tension for him in this episode. He really, by coming to this time period, has gotten to fully realize himself as a person. Mm. And then he reaches out to the Legion, who are presumably his friends, and he hasn't even talked to them in a long time. Which I wonder if his past relationships with them in that way were one of the reasons that he did not want to reach out to them. Mm, Yeah. And then when he gets his message back from Wynne, we find out that the Legion is looking for him to serve as the solution to a problem. Mm. In a very specific and kind of dehumanizing way, even though he's not human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then in this episode, we have this culmination of Brainy explaining all the ways that he's learned to embrace this messy, organic (laughs) side of himself in ways that are really powerful and meaningful to him. And then we have the foil to that, (laughs) (laughs) which is Lex, who similarly came into this part of season six thinking he hadn't been able to experience particular feelings and now he can question mark (laughs) still kind of puzzled since sociopaths shouldn't be able to do that yeah (laughs) but in addition to that contrast of brainy going from being this sort of detached character who hadn't realized all he was capable of as a person and now feeling like he is capable of all of it versus lex 
who never considered that he was capable of the things <laughs> and now just assumes he is. This episode also served to remind us that to some people, Brainy is still literally just a machine. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was sort of interestingly reinforced by the vision that Nia has, where there are these like flashes of the hourglass where like time is running out. And there's a shot of Brainy sitting on the ship in his chair and he sort of turns into this digital stuff, kind of reminded me of Mm. what Indigo would do in season one. So there's this message of like he is being reduced to stuff, a digital thing. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then connected to that, we have the idea of fungibility, the idea that he's expendable or replaceable and Mm -hmm. and not unique in the fact that the Legion calls him and says, you know, come back so that you can sacrifice yourself and die for us. Yeah. That instrumentality. Yeah. And it's interesting the way that the sort of mom brainy character (laughs) says to brainy, we will exist, maybe not as ourselves, but as part of something greater. You know, that idea that they are interchangeable, they are just one thing, and that Brainy is not a unique, like, thing, like, worthy of preserving in and of himself. Mm. And then Brainy responds, I am a part of something greater here in this time. I have a family. I'm in love. And it kind of reminded me of that opposite sentiment that Kara had in season one when she was going to sacrifice herself to save the Earth when she sort of saw herself as a tool. Mm. Oh, in the season one finale? Yes. She says, but my mother didn't send me to Earth to fall in love with a human, have children, live in a house with a white picket fence. That is not her like purpose is what she's saying there. But the fact that she's saying it at all means that part of her has wanted it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this idea coming from the sort of mom brainy character and Car in season one and throughout the series from different characters that like individual lives and subjective experiences do not matter. And that is a conflict that several characters have. Mm. And the other Brainy says, I truly am sorry, Quirrell. It is unfortunate that you are burdened with feeling so much. Which is interesting because this is how Brainy has felt all season about the depth of his emotions. He asks, like, how do I make these feelings go away? And he has the urge to go back to that little boxes technique of stuffing them away and suppressing his personality. And, you know, that association with feelings and including specifically love being a bad thing very much stems from how Bernie's mother bottled a planet because she, as Bernie says, saw how much he loved it. There's that idea that, like, me loving a thing hurts people broadly. (laughs) Mm. But Brainy slowly is realizing that his feelings, the fact that he loves things and those personal subjective experiences are, like, the part of him that makes him him, himself. They are his individuality, his subjective experience, his personhood, Mm. or his personality uninhibited. And, you know, Brainy is struggling with that in this episode, says to Nia, we just have to accept that my destiny is there and yours is here. And it's sort of that idea that they are instruments in the grand scheme of things that he is aligning himself with. But then Nia, who has been this encouraging force for Brainy regarding like him following his feelings and, and trusting them and understanding them, grounds him here and says, right now you're here with me. Do you feel your hand in mine, my head on your shoulder? That's all that matters. And she emphasizes Brainy's very subjective experience right now. <laughs> mm, yeah. Which actually matches what Kara does with Esme earlier in the episode, where she emphasizes the feelings that Esme is experiencing in that moment mm. and saying, like, hey, it's okay. Well, and then also kind of like Kara's sort of bonding moment with Esme and her powers and being like, oh, do you hear the butterfly? 
wings flapping. Mm -hmm. So that was a nice moment. It also kind of reminded me of Kelly's advice in Fear Not. Mm, Yeah. About hanging on to what's real by like affirming what you can tell in reality around you. Yeah. And this moment with Nia and Brainy reminds me of what the female Brainy said to original recipe Brainy (laughs) in season five. What I'm saying is love is not meant to minimize you. It makes you more, more capable, more compassionate. And that sort of goes to the heart of this conflict. Like that big brain versus is I am a part of something greater because of his relationships. And so because of the prompting that Nia does, Brainy kind of finds a way to hold on to what he's learned, despite, you know, at the end of it, kind of agreeing with the idea that he has to sacrifice himself mm-hmm. when he says, I do not intend to be this Debbie with a sad surname. <laughs> Which, for those of you who are maybe not old enough to remember, (laughs) Debbie Downer is a Saturday Night Live character. Yes. Who would comedically ruin any fun friend gathering. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) Yeah. But when Brainy says that, a uplifting Brainy theme starts to play, the antithesis of wah, wah, wah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sort of affirming, like, this is Brainy being himself. It is a very Brainy line. Debbie with a sad surname. Just kind of a little offbeat from the like earth culture and then brainy says you know actually i am grateful to feel so much love and loss because then i know it all truly meant something and here brainy is recognizing that the thing of value is his feelings you know what else is really funny that's definitely like a quote that people use in their yearbooks all the time (laughs) (laughs) yes which is fitting for the end of the series (laughs) well and also because he had those revelations about what high school must be like when they did the prom episodes oh true Yes. So that's where Brainy's development is at. We'll have Mm -hmm. to see whether or not he actually does end up sacrificing himself if they find another way or, you know, what what the ultimate message is there. Yeah, this was their teeing up his series conclusion Mm -hmm. as a character, which should be fun. And we know from the trailer that some members of the Legion are going to pop back in. That's why they name dropped Win. (laughs) Also, the use of the word destiny, hinting that the destiny totem is the last one. Hmm. Yes. The next episode is called The Last Gauntlet. So we're high key amping up for the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And then, as I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about Brainy, one of the things that happened with him and Nia also was nicely connected to something that happened with Esme and Kara in this episode as well. Mm -hmm. And they are both also characters who were experiencing different levels and different kinds of being treated as objects. Mm -hmm. In this episode, and also with Kara just throughout the series. Right. But we have it very literally with Esme, because we found out last week that she's the love totem now. Yeah. (laughs) Not a great position to be in. By the way, please keep in mind that that episode apparently took place less than 24 hours before this one. (laughs) Yes. Which, it's been hard to gauge how time has passed in this season, because there are times when maybe there's a longer break between an episode, but the last few have all been, like, within Mm. a couple days of each other. Right. Yes. But for Esme turning into the love totem, to go back to this idea of objectification and the different notions involved, we have instrumentality, that that tool idea for Esme being a source of power not worth regarding as a person, as we see with Lex and Nixley. Mm. But we also see the ways that Esme is dealing with being othered at school. A mean girl, as Kelly calls her, told Esme that what she baked looked like an ugly log. And then Esme's powers got out of control, which, you know, only serves to further other her. Mm, Yeah. And in contrast with the objectification that we see in fungibility being like interchangeable, othering sort of reduces a person to like being a thing 
based on how different that they are. Their their personhood mm-hmm. is not recognized. Yeah, but it's not recognized because they're different rather than because you're treating them as part of a faceless whole. Exactly. And I think when we did our episode for blind spots, we talked about that because that's actually a very common part of the black experience mm-hmm. in the States. Yes. Of feeling othered in the sense that you feel extremely visible because you're the only one and you're different, mm-hmm. but also that people don't recognize you as a person and they just treat you like a faceless nothing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, Alex and William both in this episode affirm Esme's individuality as like valuable and kind of a part of her personhood as opposed to something that makes her more of a thing. Alex says, I think Chelsea is just jealous because she's making boring old brownies and your roulade is exciting and unique, just like you. And William shares a family secret for the best chocolate with roots in his Indian heritage. Hmm. Yeah, that was cute. Yes. And Alex's comment, while very sweet in the moment, did make me think of her comments that she made to Kelly in blind spots that Mm. Kelly then said were not actually all that helpful Mm. because they were minimizing the root of the problem and just being like, oh, but you got this. You're cool. Yeah. It'll be fine. And that sort of, I think, links to Alex's experience of being othered, being blending into the background and like suppressing who she is versus feeling like she stands out in that visibility way. And so Alex and Kara have this conflict where Kara suggests that Alex finds sort of a solution for Esme like the one she had when she was a kid with her glasses. And Alex doesn't take the suggestion well. And she later explains, like I just mentioned, that she doesn't want Esme to feel othered. But there's some irony here where Alex is unknowingly fostering othering and objectification for Esme and Kara in ways that she wouldn't necessarily pick up on as a white lesbian human. Yeah. So on the one hand, yes, she is being more reflective about her own childhood and the things that were not great and the mistakes that maybe she made and that her family made Mm -hmm. and recognizing how much it held her back to not be true to herself and not feel like she could. But the world building in this series has never given Alex any negative experiences with her identity Mm -hmm. or in disclosing it to other people other than her being in her own head about it and that harming her relationships with everyone around her. Right. And that was the piece where the intersectionality of that was missing in the conflict between Alex and Kara because every other character in the show who is a part of a minority group, including Nia, Mm -hmm. who is also a queer character, has openly faced discrimination because of their identity repeatedly. Mm -hmm. It's literally only Alex who hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) So the fact that Alex as a character who's never really been all that vocal or attached to this facet of her identity, Hmm. isn't realizing in this episode that maybe she's not seeing all the pieces. In a way, it was sort of consistent with her behavior from 612, where she didn't see that she wasn't really being all that supportive and was actually minimizing things that Kelly was going through Mm -hmm. until Kelly called her attention to it. She's in this episode is not seeing that maybe her support of Esme isn't actually as helpful as she thinks it is. But also she's not recognizing at all that maybe all of her support of Kara over the years has come with another side to it that isn't so supportive. Mm -hmm. And they did bring back a lot of sibling dynamic motifs again in this season. And while, you know, Alex is not Maeve, that's for sure, (laughs) but she's not perfect. And that's been her struggle as a character of accepting that she can't be perfect. Right. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, we just talked about how Alex's ability and Kara's to recognize 
recognize the imperfections and like the mistakes they've made with each other is the thing that makes them good sisters. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they don't go there is notable. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, on the topic of objectification, we have in this conflict with Alex and Kara a denial of subjectivity, like we talked about. Kara's experiences and feelings don't need to be taken into account. She says, you know, I'm just saying this because I have the life experience to know what she's going through about Esme. And Alex is like, I know what you went through as well. I mean, I was there, remember? And Kara's like, of course, it's just you're raising a child with powers now and there's no way for you to fully grasp what that feels like. And for an example of this, just look at three episodes ago in episode 615. Mm-hmm. Alex asks Supergirl to sit down with Esme and help her figure out her powers. And Kara and Esme are experiencing what Kara's superhearing feels like together. Mm-hmm. And Alex is sitting next to them trying to guess how to match her facial expressions to their moods because she is not participating. She cannot participate. Mm-hmm. You know, she's watching from the outside. And the other piece within that scene is that she doesn't attempt to console Esme in a way of saying they can stop Mm. because she has no idea how loud or scary the sounds are. And she pushes them to keep going. And Kara takes her cue from that because she's respecting Alex's role as the parent. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So Alex here is trying to act as kind of the mom who understands powers, right? (laughs) And there's a little bit of support for why Alex may think that she understands them. Mm. Yeah, actually, it was kind of interesting to look back at Alex in Wonderland after this episode Mm. and consider that Alex, in feeling mad and partially at Kara, (laughs) went into her VR simulation and decided to give herself Kara's powers. Mm -hmm. But as we learned in season five, when Alex is in the VR, powers don't work the way they do in reality. They work the way you imagine that they should work, which we saw when she was using the hand of the soldier successfully Mm -hmm. in the VR, even though she couldn't figure out for a long time how to get it to work in reality. Right. And even within the VR, she initially found it tricky to figure out how to use Kara's powers to appropriate levels, even though she had control over imagining how they should work. Yeah. And it is interesting, this idea with Alex and Kara's powers, because we saw how in season four, when Alex didn't have like the full context of Kara's experience as an alien, the Supergirl part of her was taken out of her memory. Alex then had trouble connecting to the fact that Supergirl could be vulnerable because she was attached to this idea of her powers. Mm, Yep. So there's reason to believe that Alex does not, again, have a full understanding of the difficult parts of that. No. And the scene from episode 615 with Kara and Esme and the superhearing really illuminated that mm-hmm. because it shows you very clearly through Esme's eyes, because she's just a little girl, how uncomfortable and upsetting the hearing is mm-hmm. because Kara tries to focus her on like nice, pleasant things and then the world interferes. Mm-hmm. And Esme is uncomfortable because it's loud, because the unknown is scary, because some of the stuff is sounds violent. And, you know, actually, that reminds me of when we saw Kara experience that in the flashbacks, because Kara was experiencing right. the intensity of that. And Alex was kind of off talking to her friends. <laughs> she was not necessarily witnessing the full scope of what Kara was going through. Well, and more to the point, like Kara is sharing one power with Esme. Mm. And Kara, in that baby flashback of her from season one, 
the hearing is what sets her off because the bell rings and she doesn't expect it and it's loud. But then that kicks her X-ray vision into overdrive and she starts like seeing through people's bodies and Mm -hmm. getting overwhelmed by even more sounds because there's no grounding for her because Alex is off doing something else. Mm. (laughs) But the other piece to come back to the scene from a couple episodes ago was that. Esme gets so upset that she calls Alex horrible for subjecting her to that Mm. for not a very long period of time and in a controlled way in a safe space. Mm. But the other nice piece of that scene is that we see that this is something Kara deals with every day all of the time. Yeah. And as she's trying to tell Alex in this episode, she learned how to do it and she learned how to do it well because she was given the right tools to manage it. Mm -hmm. Like if they had just left her alone... (laughs) way we saw in those flashbacks and she even says that in this episode that she was othered until she got a handle on the things Mm -hmm. because they did make her different in a way that made people cruel but the other piece of it is that we've seen throughout multiple flashbacks to Alex's childhood with Kara that Alex did not like it when Mm -hmm. Kara wasn't able to fully control her powers or cope with the side effects of them You know, every time in the early flashbacks when Kara first came and they were around peers, Alex is kind of glancing at her like she wishes she could get away as fast Mm -hmm. as possible. She runs over and it's like, people are staring. Don't do that. Right. Kara accidentally does the heat vision because she's scared and Alex is annoyed and says, get it together. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And even in the season six flashbacks, she's constantly like, you shouldn't be doing this. Right. And so for Alex to suggest that because she was there with Kara, she knows what she's looking for and what she's looking at Mm. is kind of an odd defensive position to take, given that we actually saw in 615 that Esme is having experiences due to her powers that Alex is not seeing, even though they happen right in front of her. Mm -hmm. For example, and you don't realize this until later in the episode, Alex doesn't actually tell Esme that Jean or Kara is an alien when she introduces them to her, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that they both have very intense powers. And she knows Esme doesn't know how to control hers. (laughs) But we find out later in the episode when Esme recognizes Kara as Supergirl that she has some awareness of how her powers work and that she can apparently identify other kinds of aliens because she can sense or see what their powers are. Mm -hmm. And no one figured that out. And because Esme's so young, she doesn't know how to explain what she knows she can do. And she hasn't been given the opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. No one's asked her to tell them what she does and doesn't understand. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, you know, why, A, it's a good thing to have a sort of advocate who understands her experience, who can articulate the things. But B, also going back to these notions of objectivity, denial of autonomy, Alex doesn't think to ask Esme how she feels about it and see if she would like something to help manage her powers. There's that lack of consideration of Esme's own autonomy. Mm, Part of that is Alex thinking, oh, I don't want to make her think that we're like the lady in the group home who made her wear the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it goes back to this other thing of like denial of subjectivity. Oh, it absolutely does. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where like Kara, say, asks Esme a question about her powers and Alex sort of immediately responds for Esme, which may be because, you know, Alex is 
anticipating Esme will not want to talk about it, but it's quite immediate. Well, speaking of assuming she won't want to talk about it, Kara sometimes doesn't want to talk about things Mm. related to her powers. Like that time that Alex walked in on her doing a Kryptonian meditation and when I've never seen you do that before. Right. Yes. And then there's interesting interpersonal peace between Kara and Alex in terms of objectification and the idea of Kara's like experience and feelings not needing to be taken into account. Alex kind of doesn't try to repair her relationship with Kara after they have the fight. Kara kind of has to go mm-hmm. to her. And she also ignores Kara's first attempt to do so. And, you know, whether or not that was because Alex was just stressed and wanted to move on, mm-hmm. Kara herself definitely takes it as a rejection, as you can see by her face after Alex leaves. Mm. And it was a rejection in keeping with ones that we've seen in early seasons of the series, too. Yeah, that's true. And just earlier in the scene, Alex had kind of shut down Carr's attempt at compassion about Alex's plans going south. So they're set up there for Carr to feel that way with some validity. Yeah. And then to kind of come back to Esme and the fact that she's a literal object, mm-hmm. at least in the eyes of, say, Lex, mm-hmm. I do want to revisit the idea of fungibility or is she unique? Can she just be interchanged with any random child? Mm. Because we haven't really been given very much context about her as an alien who's been adopted by human people. We don't know what happened to her parents. There was one line of her alluding to bad things always happen, and it was interpreted by the adults around her as being related to her powers. And we haven't heard about whether or not there are any other surviving aliens of her species, Mm. let alone if she has other relatives anywhere. Mm. We haven't had any examples of Kelly and Alex talking about how they plan to approach Esme's heritage and give her opportunities to experience it and learn about it. Mm -hmm. Which is odd just because we've had throughout the series, every other alien character in the show has talked about how much they feel that absence of those things, Mm -hmm. of people, of places, of culture, even though they have family in the present and Mm -hmm. on Earth who they feel connected to and have close relationships to. And again, that's not an experience that Alex or Kelly has Mm -hmm. or can immediately directly relate to. If you think about it, that's the whole reason that they're in the situation they're in this season, actually, (laughs) as a collective group, because Nia felt that absence so acutely Mm. of disconnect from culture, disconnect from family, disconnect from, you know, Naltor and traditions and understanding of anything about herself. And it was because her family minimized her in a lot of ways Mm. and did not treat her like she should have access to those things. Yeah. And so she literally went chasing the ghost of her mom to try to get answers. (laughs) And that's how Nixley ended up here. (laughs) Yeah. But you also have Kara and Jean do the same thing. You know, Jean seeks out his father's ghost. Kara talks to the hologram of her mother. Mm. They're looking desperately for these things to connect them to something that they've lost. And that's actually a very common experience for real life adopted children. Mm -hmm. They will often have questions about their biological family, where they came from, or they'll feel like something's missing because there's just a context for themselves that they don't have. Mm -hmm. And that happens no matter how much they love their adoptive families or how supportive they are. Yeah. And, you know, one sort of interesting piece that a human family member may sort of miss or or not fully experience as a sort of harmful part of human culture is this idea of like aliens as science experiments that we see kind of be relevant with Alex and Kara and Alex and Esme, where Alex and Kelly come to the tower to do tests on Esme. 
Alex is like, her powers got a little out of hand, so we're just going to run some tests and get to the bottom of it, which, you know, makes sense for Alex's perspective. Mm. And the kind of interesting thing there is that if you think all the way back to season one with Alex's background in bioengineering and then her getting recruited to the DEO, most of the medical investigative stuff she's done has always been within a military and strategic context. Mm, yes. As opposed to like a nurturery medicine context. Right. That's true. But it's probably kind of scary for Esme, especially with regard to like the ways that aliens and experiments are represented in like human media, you know, think mm. E.T., where there's this alien creature that is hunted down by the government to be experimented on, which is something that Kara probably was afraid of <laughs> growing up, you know, mm. yeah, given all the Cadmus and the DEO running around. Well, but also if you think about media portrayals of aliens, they're always like ugly, they're mm. evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, there's the sense of like they are a problem to solve mm. structurally within a narrative. And so this role of Alex as a scientist, medical person, we've seen her take it before with Kara. And it reminds me of something she said in the pilot episode, actually, about the DEO. They recruited me because my background in bioengineering makes me an expert on alien physiology. And yeah, it helps that I shared a bathroom with one, which is mm -hmm. yeah, quite <laughs> othering language, if you think about it. The, a bathroom with one is sort of demeaning. Yeah, where, like her sister's this thing she shared a bathroom with. Yeah. Well, and the whole point was that was her like mean defensiveness mm. in the context in which she was saying that to Kara. Mm -hmm. Not that that makes it better, but it is consistent. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And so Alex's tests on Esme in this episode reminded me of the montage in Human for a Day when Kara lost her powers and mm. Alex is moving around her doing a bunch of tests and Kara ends up sitting in this like scary chair thing with this metal thing locking her head into place and she sort of looks up to Alex who is like holding her hand but is also looking at the data and doesn't make eye contact with Kara and Kara kind of looks back away you know mm. after the gaze is not met. Which is interesting because if you think back to the pilot Alex goes to take Kara's hand after she's just been shot down with kryptonite mm. and Kara refuses and then won't make eye contact with her. Oh, yes. Interesting. But for that sequence in Human for a Day, after that moment where Alex does not make the eye contact back, the sequence ends with Kara standing with the hologram of Alora, who is saying, as always, my collective knowledge is at your disposal for further analysis. And Kara's like, thank you. And then the hollow Alora disappears <laughs> and she finishes mom. And it really emphasizes the fact that this is something that Kara had to go through without anyone there who could really share in the experience in the way mm. that she longed for. It's interesting that you say that, given that she told Alex in episode eight of this season that she felt so lonely. Yeah. And Alex is like, well, you have me. And now <laughs> we're exploring the cracks in that. Right. But it's interesting because with Esme, there is a level of shared experience where Kara just kind of gets things with regard to powers, like how having the powers themselves makes you feel othered, mm. like we talked about, or like an object. And there's also just this ease to how Kara understands what's happening with Esme in the scene when Kelly and Alex bring Esme to the tower. And Kara says, I'm sorry, Esme, my powers got a little overwhelming at times, too, when I was little, but it gets better, I promise. Mm, yeah. And that's such an interesting contrast between Kara and Alex in that scene, because Alex keeps fixating on solutions, which then implies that there's a problem to be solved. Right. Whereas Kara is focusing on Esme and Esme's experiences and is validating 
that it's okay that she's having these feelings mm-hmm. or these experiences because they're a normal part of learning how to have powers and live with them. Yeah. And then also in, in true Kara fashion, there's a little hope in there. The hope speech. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> she's like, you'll grow into it. It'll get better. Exactly. And so there's this sort of rich, mostly untapped history between the sisters with regard to Kara's alienness and how Alex also contributed to Kara feeling othered or like less like a person mm-hmm. and how she, you know, initially was quite irritated at Kara as like this burden following her around. Mm. And then in season two, she and Kara talk about that period when Kara first came into the family. And Alex mentioned that she had all these expectations before Kara really moved in of Kara as just, quote, an alien sister who (laughs) she could make be exactly like her because it was an abstraction in her mind. It took her a while to recognize Kara as a person with specific Mm -hmm. tastes and wants and interests. Exactly. Just the different parts of it and then the also difficult parts of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Kara grapples with feeling like this thing that happened to Alex because of how much of a responsibility was placed on Alex's shoulders and the ways that that has negatively affected Alex growing up mm. and even now, you know, and Kara wondering if she has a place in the family, which then makes it like harder to stand up for her subjective experience and perspective. And then sort of contributes to the times when she's shot down feeling worse for her and mm. the like slight devastation that she feels when Alex does not try to have a conversation with her to repair things between them. And it's especially raw, probably, given that Alex is integrating new family members, an inflection point like they experienced in season two when Alex mm-hmm. started to date Maggie. Yeah. And Cara feeling like, do I have a place here? Yeah. And then that was reinforced in their conflict over Jeremiah. Right. Because Alex insisted that she was seeing it as it was and she was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then she accused Cara of not really being a part of their family. <laughs> yes. Oh, Alex. <laughs> oh, Alex. Which, you know, we'll see if they do anything with this or if this loop has been closed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then to kind of close out the rest of this episode's addressing of are people people or are they objects? Yeah. We had two characters who just treat everyone like objects. Yes. Lex and Andrea. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. We have Lex who says in this episode, it's not about flaunting what you've got. It's about having it and knowing no one else does. When Nixley brings up like, why are all these cool artifacts just in this sad room? <laughs> <laughs> Lex likes to possess things and people, like we mentioned, that ownership. And we see repeatedly throughout the series how to Lex, everyone is like a piece in a game of chess. The only value Mm. that they have is in how he can use them. Everyone's an object, but they are ranked with more useful or less useful. Are they a pawn Uh, or are they a knight? Their utility or their value. Yes, exactly. We see how he treats Mitch in this episode as this kind of servant with no autonomy, like an object. He becomes sort of a body within one of his Lexo suits. But then it's also interesting with them trying to address the idea of whether or not Lex is capable of love. He has this moment where where he's playing chess by himself and he looks over at Nixley, who is sort of staring obsessively at her orb. And they're both preoccupied with their objects and obsessed with the mm. collecting and the winning and not actually bonding in any way. <laughs> they're like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and it's funny because the narrative is trying to raise this question of whether or not Lex is capable of experiencing a human emotion. Mm-hmm. And connection to people. But then we see him turn around and kill William just because his ego was bruised. 
Yeah. And the object of his alleged affection laughed at him and he did not care for that. Yes. The other piece, which I wonder if we will see swing around next week, is we know he doesn't like aliens Mm. and he's surrounded by them. This is true. (laughs) Yes. And then uh, we had Andrea in this episode. Andrea is not as far gone as Lex, (laughs) which is why it's great that she calls Lena to ask. Uh, (laughs) Because we saw in that flashback of her and Lena in their childhood, Andrea is capable, more than capable, of making meaningful connections to people. Mm -hmm. But it is also then telling how she, when she calls Lena and Lena's like, I'm kind of busy, she just pushes past that boundary that she puts up Mm. in terms of viability and just tries to get what she wants from their relationship. Yeah. And she does that with everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In this episode and just in this season more generally, she treats Lex as a means to an end, that end being her success and her wealth, rather than listening to any of the warnings from her staff who have been investigating him about how dangerous Mm. he is as a person. Yeah. And then she uses William literally as an instrument Mm. and tacks his byline onto some thing that she collects and doesn't really vet or consider the implications of because to her it doesn't matter and his reputation and his safety as a person don't matter no which then takes us to william and the ways that he has been treated as an object in this episode we see how he is treated by both andrea and lex and was treated by nixley in the past like an object to be manipulated without like inherent worth especially around reporting like they had that conversation nixley and he when he was imprisoned in that ship and she was like reporting he's useless basically so then in having william sacrifice his life for esme and securing proof that lex is as bad as he is and is as much of a threat as he is he sort of proves to andrea at least that he was important that integrity around journalism matters, that he's not that object. And so the point is that although William is being treated by these characters like a pawn in a game of chess, he is a person who has value on his own. Mm. However, through the decision to kill William and the way that they chose to set up the character to die for the back half of the season, the show has also sent this other message, which is that William is disposable and a tool for like upping the stakes and proving a point in their narrative about like power. Mm-hmm. And it started at the very beginning of the season with the way that they broke William and Kara up so that later on when they'd killed him, she wouldn't be as thoroughly devastated. And, you know, they've made a similar move before in terms of breaking Kara up with a man of color in season two mm. for the purposes of her arc with James. And then they also spent for William all season setting him up as a hero, right? So he works through his PTSD from being shot, but then it's on his own. It didn't serve any of his relationships. He sort of just updates Nia that he's better now, you know? Yeah. And he gives everyone like wise advice. Yeah. It had that awkward, like wise mentor trope yeah. that's often filled by a character of color. Yeah. And it's especially present in the way that they handled it, where like when you are writing for television, characters should move through a scene always having some sort of goal or motivation, no matter like how many characters are in the scene. <laughs> and William has had this season more scenes than average where he is serving other characters' development, but not at the same time really advancing his own. Mm. He's given Kara advice in this way several times. Lena, Alex, Esme with the cute baking advice in this episode. <laughs> that was really cute, though. <laughs> yeah. And he stood up for what's right with Andrea, which is like this culmination of him making the rounds. Speaking of when Kara went and made her rounds before she thought she was going to die in season oh, one. Oh, no. Yeah. 
But then for William, those scenes weren't really serving to further those relationships. He was just kind of being a nice guy so that we would feel bad when he left and like understand the idea that him dying was a bad thing. Yeah. Basically, they developed him enough that we'd care that he's dead and that the other characters definitely will. Setting it up so that it'll all mean something symbolically and move the plot forward. But they also developed him in a way that wasn't really meant to serve his character because his character would end in that way, ultimately. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of made what seemed like a building of relationships between him and other characters look different because Mm -hmm. the whole time it was he's just serving other people's growth and he's expendable. Right. And part of that also is even the journalism tasks weren't really personalized to William. It wasn't about him. Mm -hmm. He was just the vehicle for getting the plot moving with Lex or with Kara quitting or what have you. Mm -hmm. So as a consequence of that, His death isn't really about him as a person either. Lex is a narcissist. He would have killed anybody who made fun of him. They made the point of that really clear Mm -hmm. in the scene where Lex confronts him about stealing the journal. And we also learn from this episode that his death is just there to push Andrea into an emotional place so that she can be a Krata in the season finale. Mm -hmm. And it's also to push Kara into a low place so that she can have whatever turn she's going to have next episode. Yeah. And it's obviously the importance that they wanted it to have. But in the process, they failed to recognize the character's worth outside of their like plan for the season. And because of that, their plan failed. Mm. <laughs> it did not feel like this important, meaningful moment. And this is not, you know, the first time a character of color has been killed for the purpose of commenting on how people of color are killed, such as Pousset's death in Orange is the New Black. But like we saw in that situation, the character is worth more to the audience than any point that you could make about their death. And it's also shocking from a show like Supergirl, which usually tries to give positive and uplifting messages about identity and the the inherent value of a person. Mm, Yeah. But then at the same time, it's not the first time that the show has done something similar. This is the third time an Indian character has been fridged. So we have William in this episode. We had Jack Sphere, who was Lena's former boyfriend, Mm -hmm. who was introduced and then died immediately. And then also Fiona, Manchester's fiance, was killed off in a way to further his emotional development as a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's also the third time a man of color has been fridged. We have obviously William and Jack. And then there's Russell, who also died mm. for Andrea's moral advancement. Yes, yeah, specifically to serve Andrea as a character. And then they undid it just to do it again. Right. So this is a pretty big blind spot for the show. Yeah. And also quite cynical choices from the show about hope, help and compassion for all. Yeah, it was a raising of stakes in a strange way, I guess. Mm -hmm. And we actually got a couple of questions related to this episode and people feeling like it didn't quite work. And also some sillier ones. Yeah, we'll end on a light (laughs) note. Um, (laughs) But before I say the next thing I want to say about that, I do want to read the questions because they are related to kind of the discussion that we're having. An anonymous Tumblr user asked, in general, this episode just felt so not Supergirl to me. Any thoughts on why that might be? I've seen some comments that might explain it, but in general, I can't put my finger on anything exactly. And then another anonymous 
Tumblr user asked, The Danvers family dynamic is why I kept watching the show. The sisters' contrived conflict in this episode feels like a betrayal, especially since they haven't had any meaningful scenes together for most of the final season. Mm. Yeah, we've been trying to fully articulate Mm -hmm. what was off in this episode. So one of the quibbles I had with this episode was that it felt too obvious to me as a viewer that every step in this episode was set up for the thing that was coming next, which was set up for the things for the finale. Yeah, sort of like plot driving situations as opposed to character motivation. Yeah. And also it was like you you could hear the wheels turning. (laughs) which you sh- you shouldn't usually mm-hmm. it it shouldn't be that obvious so the fact that every decision characters were making in this episode was driving plot instead of it being like a natural outgrowth of development that's happened over the past 10 episodes made the choices feel a little bit off we already knew the stakes were high <laughs> <laughs> They integrated William specifically to kill him off to push other characters into emotional places Mm -hmm. that are relevant to their worst fears. They did it for Andrea. They did it for Cara. They did it for Alex. Yeah. Which are sort of also in reach without doing that. Yeah. This wasn't necessary to accomplish that task. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting to this idea of like, why does this episode feel like it's not Supergirl? It's a combination of things, I think, where the Danvers sisters' interactions are not supported by the rest of the season, like the second anonymous Mm -hmm. Tumblr user mentioned. Yeah. They haven't really had a scene together since episode eight. Yeah. And in terms of like the heart of the show, that is what we think about. And their interactions did not feel genuine in the way that they usually do. And then I think also the values piece where we think of Supergirl as a show that tries consistently and like learns over time and the decision to kill William and then some of the strange messages with Alex around being an alien and also some of the interactions Carr has had with Lena this season sort of undervaluing that status is something that is worth considering Mm. serve to undermine what I think a lot of us viewers see as the core of the show. The sisters, the found family aspect, Mm. and the values part. Yeah. And specifically to the, the Danvers sisters conflict, it circled all of the things that are at the heart of why they conflict with each other and why it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then there just there were no lines of dialogue to make it clear that that's what was happening. Mm-hmm. It was so close. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like Alex was defensive in a way we've seen her be defensive before. And it's usually when on the inside she feels like she's failing and she doesn't want you to know it. But that wasn't present in the text of the scene. <laughs> and then the conclusion of it with them later in the episode made it feel like that door was closed. Yeah. I mean, maybe it isn't because yeah. I speculated to you back when we saw Kara's Courage Gauntlet that it felt like her confronting Alex for shutting her down maybe is part of it. Mm-hmm. But it didn't feel like this episode was setting us up to go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We will have to see, you know, <laughs> in next week. There are a few different ways they could take this. Yeah. And then so for more lighthearted <laughs> questions, <laughs> Layla of Paper sent us for episode 618, what do you think the Truth Gauntlet would have asked of the core characters? Well, something that we've been talking about with Alex is perhaps her insecurity around whether or not she is equipped to take care of Esme. Mm. So perhaps something like that. For Kara, when I initially watched the episode, I thought they might have her confront the ways that she has not addressed the sort of microaggressions that she's experienced with Alex. And then what for Jean? I feel like Jean's (laughs) kind of gotten there. Um, (laughs) True. He did pass the courage gauntlet. He did. Maybe just more of a truth in acknowledging how much he cares about people, because part of the side effect for him and the bravery thing was voicing 
Mm. how he feels about the people that he loves. Yeah. A wholesome truth gauntlet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> Layla also asked, to put things on a lighter note, I'd like to please request a return of the CatCo Fashion Corner, in particular the Bachelorette party outfits. And then Caitlin Grant also asked, rate the Bachelorette attendees by both outfits and dancing ability. Take it away. <laughs> you all read my mind because I was already planning to do that. So we have rate my party clothes for this time around. And I guess we'll sneak in dance ability or lack thereof as mm -hmm. we go. So I will start with Alex because it's her party and she can have fun if she wants to. <laughs> or can she? Or can she? Yeah, I guess we'll see next week. So I actually, I've noticed this a little bit. I really enjoy when Alex feels confident in herself and then she picks something that's a little bit more like flashy and maybe revealing to wear. <laughs> but I chose flashy because that means she's prepared to go visit Barry and fix whatever he's doing in the flash Armageddon thing two weeks from now. <laughs> yeah. So I will give her a 13 out of 10 for the lovely, the V-neck and the bling. Nice. And uh, <laughs> her dancing ability, I mean... She needed prompting to get out of her seat. She wasn't, like, feeling it a whole lot. She was having a great time when, like, Kara started having fun. Mm -hmm. So I, I'll give her, like, a 10 out of 10 for the dancing. Okay. And then Kelly next, because Kelly is also the guest of honor at this festive celebration. <laughs> so we had Kelly choose to go with a ponytail and a very flattering pink ensemble, which means that she is clearly destined to be Kara's sister-in-law, because that's also Kara's power look when she She's going on a date. <laughs> 13 out of 10 for the aesthetic for Miss Kelly Olson. And job, I will Kelly. give her a 12 out of 10 for instigating the dancing and <sighs> forcing Alex to join her. <laughs> <laughs> Good work. MVP. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then Kara, as the one who was trying real hard to bring the cheer, <laughs> we had green sparkles, which was mm -hmm. a fabulous look. And then we had a nice, like, floaty skirt for showing off her sweet, sweet dance moves. <laughs> I described her whole look as Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Kara, <laughs> just go have fun. Go Be have fun. free. Live your life. <laughs> it had a very, like, a hippie aesthetic. It did. It had a little bit of, like, a, a flowy... Peace and love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I love life right now. Energy to it. So I will give Kara a 14 out of 10 for trying her well, best to embrace the moment. Good job, Kara. And I will also give Kara, like, a 100 out of 10 for her goofy dancing because she was the only one actively attempting to dance. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have Nia. Nia wow. went with the, you know, monochrome color palette. She chose mm -hmm. gold, which is classic, nice. tasteful, perfect for crying in because you still look good. Uh, <laughs> it just, it says, I'm here and I'm classy, even though I am part of that couple that's in the corner bringing down the prom. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm here. I'm queer. I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> there she is. So there she is. A 13 out of 10 for Nia's look. She had to do some emotional and physical hand-holding before she got to the dance floor. Mm -hmm. So I will give her an 11 out of 10 for contributing to the party spirit by, <laughs> by bringing it all together. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And then to round out the ladies of the evening, we have Lena. Mm -hmm. She went with a, a basic black chic look, trendy braid, 
Very nice. Big, <laughs> poofy, satisfying to look at. And I, apparently she's also just been blessed by the eyeliner fairy this season. <laughs> it's the witch aesthetic, can attest. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, she's, she's embracing her inner witch. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so for that whole outfit, I will give a 12 out of 10 because like it was it was effort but it also wasn't super outside her comfort zone mm-hmm. and then for the dancing you know she got into the spirit of things we we know that lena's like that kid who was never invited to birthday <laughs> parties as a child so she's like not sure how to participate mm-hmm. but she felt comfortable she took a risk we'll give her like a 10 out of 10 okay she and alex can be buddies All right. And now for the men. gentlemen. It's their turn. They haven't gotten a fashion rating yet. (gasps) So first we have Brainy, who went with a very elegant look. He had suspenders. They were there to help hug him while he was (laughs) consoling himself. Mm -hmm. And then the the black color just reflected the state of his soul. Mm -hmm. So I felt like he was really thinking very carefully about what he wanted to say with this outfit. Like he came out here to have a good time. And he was honestly feeling so attacked by feelings, which is gross. So so a 14 out of 10 for Brainy for truly letting his his fashion express his inner yes. dialogue. He's trying to hold himself together with the suspenders, but also reflect the truth of his feelings with the color. Yes. And it worked because Nia picked up on it. So he did a good job. A good job, Brainy. And then I will give him a 12 out of 10 for dancing, specifically for his little joke about teaching them how to to dance in the future, <laughs> which was very, very good. cute and a nice way of lightening the mood. Hmm. And then we have Jean. Jean had some like fun texture going on with his shirt. He was wearing a nice like earth tone, Mars tone, brown, mm-hmm. stripey number. Mm-hmm. Simple but classy dad vibes. I would say I'd give him 12 points, but I'm going to take a point away for the weird vibe where he was chaperoning his daughter's bachelorette party <laughs> like it it was 1926 and she needed to have an escort to preserve her, her propriety, <laughs> you know, before the wedding. Um, so overall for Jean, an 11 out of 10. Although, does he get points for not participating in dancing? <laughs> I will actually give him bonus points back for knowing that it was not his time. Time to be dancing with the kids. So I will give him a 13 out of 10 for his discretion. <laughs> yes. All right. Okay. And then our next question from also Caitlin Grant. They really had Carr refer to Eliza and Jeremiah as mom and dad and my parents the week before the series ends forever, didn't they? Wow. (laughs) What did you guys think of that choice? And are you as sad as I am that we're in all likelihood never going to see Eliza react to Carr calling her mom on screen? Well, there's still two episodes left, so one never knows. In terms of her doing it... I just thought it was a little funny that Cars found out that both of her biological parents are alive and then in this one line has basically disowned them. Um, <laughs> like, well, they're the not here, hand, so. Yeah, yeah, they're not here. They're, abs- they're absentee parents. Um, I liked it, but it was also kind of, it felt like it was more for Alex's benefit in some ways than for Cars because it was like she was trying to get Alex to understand that like their shared parents did things for her mm-hmm. as Alex's sister. Yeah. That might be useful for her child. (laughs) Yeah. But we'll see about that calling Eliza mom. There's always hope. There's always hope. (laughs) Hope. Gasp. (laughs) And then Caitlin Grant also sent us a whole bunch of other questions, and we'll answer more of them on our site because they were all fun questions. Mm -hmm. But we did want to do one of them. 
After another Harry Potter reference, the visuals of the heat vision versus Lex's lasers was so reminiscent of the mm. Goblet of Fire Priori Incantatum scene where the wands connect. I'm back in my crossover feelings. <laughs> If somehow characters from Supergirl were able to spend a day with a single character from Harry Potter, which Harry Potter character would you choose for each Supergirl character to connect with and why? Yes. And you immediately told me that you have very specific answers (laughs) (laughs) to this. So I think Kara and Harry would bond because of the whole orphan with powers in a family that Mm. did not have any situation. True. And I also feel like Kara would like Luna Lovegood. Yes. Like they'd get along really nicely. Mm-hmm. What about like a little older Esme and like youngest Harry that we've seen? <gasps> oh, that would be so cute. <laughs> okay. I approve. Also, now that you say Esme, I'm like Esme with Neville would be very sweet because mm. he always feels like he's messing up. <gasps> yes. And like doing things wrong. I actually would be interested in seeing Jean with like a Harry who's coming into book five where he's really in the throes of PTSD, but nobody Mm -hmm. actually identifies that as what it is. Mm -hmm. And he's experiencing a lot of just really intense emotions and also the weird like mind connection Mm. thing with Voldemort that's throwing off his life. That could be a really cool thing to explore. Especially kind of like Jean's vibe with Kara in season three early on. Mm, yeah. We could have nice chats. Nia, I think it would be really funny to pair with Professor Trelawney. <laughs> <laughs> also, Luna Lovegood. Ah, yes. I also think, though, I would like to see Nia with, like, Professor McGonagall because mm. of the concept of transfiguration and changing one thing <gasps> into another. Mm-hmm. Me like, and Car with McGonagall because I like both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's also a good choice. And then who have I skipped? Uh, Brainy. Brainy. Ooh, who would be fun with Brainy? I Actually, this is silly, but I would enjoy seeing Brainy with the Weasley twins. Oh, that would be fun. I think he, he with Fred and George could be really funny. Yeah, and, and he's like enjoyable. a little bit offbeat where <laughs> it would be interesting. Yeah, well, and I think they'd also enjoy the fact that he'd know who they are. Like he'd be able to tell them apart mm. in a way that a lot of people in the mm. narrative of that story treat them as interchangeable. <sighs> and uh, wow. then also they'd encourage him to have like a little more of a sense of whimsy <laughs> and be mischievous and have fun. And fun. Yes. And he'd get to learn the true meaning of high school. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about James? Oh, uh, the older Weasleys brothers, I think, like Bill or Charlie. Oh, interesting. I like that. Because they ha- they have like Ron always looks at them with like hero worship in the way we see James with Clark. So I was like, that could be kind of cool. Hmm. And then Lena, last but not least, <laughs> I think I would put Lena with Hermione just because this season Lena has struggled so much with the idea that science and magic are not compatible. And Hermione is like the most logical, <laughs> methodical person yes. who utilizes magic so naturally within that context. You know who would be interesting? Lena and Draco and like mm. seeing, I feel like Lena would have a certain level of disdain <laughs> there. <laughs> but like little Draco who's still pretty impressionable or like teenage Draco who needs an intervention because his parents are putting him in some bad things. <laughs> like The full development will... <laughs> <laughs> All right. (laughs) Okay. And then we have one more question before we close out. Mm -hmm. This is from Always and Anyways. For our pre-finale podcast episode, Rapid Fire Finale asks, (gasps) so I'll give you this one, Cycles. What would be the most delightful and or random cameo? Um, Okay. Delightful cat. Nice. My answer for delightful and random would be Brian the Blue Alien from season two. (laughs) 
Wow. Powerful. Next one. What favorite car food will you be eating while you watch, Vivi? Um, probably pizza. <laughs> Fair. So, Cycles, how many times will you cry? <laughs> uh, I'm hoping, like, you know, my goal is the whole time. Just, like, start <laughs> to finish. Like, I want to feel like I need water. <laughs> like with me like brainy you need to hydrate because you're <laughs> just hydrate. you love it so much you're for crying for all the crying yeah. i would like to be sad but happy about and it and happy yeah it's <laughs> going back to harry potter you're going to suffer but you're going to be happy about it that is the goal there she is okay and then Vivi, what do you think will happen? Wrong answers only. Um, Nixley will realize that the truth totem was actually trying to tell her that Kara was the person <laughs> that she should trust and they're going to run away and elope together at Alex's wedding. <laughs> yeah, she's going to crash <laughs> Alex's wedding. And that's like it's where gonna a fight be will... It's going to be just like the wedding in the EarthX crossover where Oliver crashed Barry's wedding. Alex <laughs> is going to be all ready to get married and have her moment in the sun and Kara's going to be like, actually, me too. And then that's uh, where their real conflict comes into play. But at the end, they find a way to have it all. <laughs> exactly. They are able to have all the things and share together. The yes. End. In it's their perfect. love. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. That's a spoiler. That's Yeah. I mean, sorry, we didn't mean to spoil you guys. You but... heard it here first. <laughs> you heard it here first. So next week is the finale, the final finale of Supergirl. And it is a two-parter. The Last Gauntlet and Kara. Mm. Yes. And for those of you who watch it live, it will start an hour earlier than normal in case mm. you don't want to miss the first half and then walk in very confused. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. And we would really like you guys to send us questions about that episode. Yeah. So feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram with your thoughts, feelings, hopes, and dreams for after the show is over. In car uh, and Nia fashion. Yes. Yes. Perfect. And thanks for listening. 